Hello, everybody. It's so good to be with everybody today. Um, this is very high, hey, love? Let me make it go down a little bit. Ruan is a bit taller than I am. Just a little bit. Thank you. Yeah, that's perfect. Thanks. Yay, so my name is Leanne. For those of you who don't know who I am, I'm married to Paul, and it is so cool just to be here this morning and to continue with our series. We're looking at the book of James, and we're in chapter four. And um, if you notice I'm a little bit stiff and struggle to sit down, it's because I shaved 10 years off my life yesterday by um, joining a whole bunch of teenagers at the Rollercade. I don't know if any of you guys have checked that place out there at Battery Park. Very cool. It reminded me of the good times in Edgemead when we used to rollerblade, roller skate around the, around the park as kids. Um, anyways, that is just an aside. Good to be here. Um, let's just quickly remind ourselves about what um, James's main point is in this book that he is writing. He is desperate to get his readers to realize that you can't say that you are a Christian. You can't say that you have a faith but then not have any evidence in your life of that faith. He's saying faith without works is dead. It, it's actually, if we can't see it, if it's not visible, then our, he's saying you've got to actually question if it's genuine um, and if it's real. And so one of the big themes of this book is to say, guys, is your faith authentic? Is it real? Are you not just a hearer of the word? Um, it's easy to hear, but it's a little bit more difficult to do. And so he urges them to be not just hearers, but doers of the word. Of the word. And so we also see in this letter, as he's writing, um, he loves the people that he's writing to. I'm going to just, you can put it up there, just some of the references to, um, to the, what he calls them. He calls them his brothers and sisters. Um, in some of the versions, it will just say brothers. That is a plural term for a group of people, and it includes brothers and sisters. So He's talking to them as brothers and sisters. You are my family. I love you. I mean, it goes um, a, a little bit later. Hmm? My oh, it doesn't say my brothers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my brothers and sisters. And my <laughs> Sometimes they can be a bother. Um, my beloved <laughs> brothers and sisters. He, it's a term of endearment. He loves them. Okay, so up until now, if you check it out in chapter 1 and chapter 2, all the references are beloved or brothers and sisters. And then we hit chapter four, which is what we started with last week and we're going to continue with today. And it seems like his tone changes and he's starting to call them, um, I'll tell you what he's starting to call them in verse four of chapter four. He says to them, you are an adulterous people. Um, he says in verse eight, which is what we're looking at today, he says, you sinners, you double-minded and so there's been a little bit of a change, you know, you, my beloved brothers and sisters, and now I'm becoming a little bit more direct um, and perhaps a bit harsh. Um, we have to ask the question, why? Why? Like, has he all of a sudden sort of changed his tune? Um, what's going on there? And I would say he's trying to wake them up. He's really trying to get a message across. And he's saying, you can't just read this letter that I'm writing and just think, ugh, this is a lovely, nice letter from my brother, James, and, and carry on with life. He's saying, you really got to take seriously what I'm about to say here. Um, you've got to wake up. He, he says, there's actually, there's a battle going on, and that's what we looked at last week. There's a battle going on, and you can't fight a battle if you're not aware of it. You need to wake up. And so he's using these harsh terms to get them to wake up. So I would encourage us to do the same today. Sit up straight. Take note of what James is saying in the verses we're going to cover this morning. In chapter 4, verse 4, this was from last week as well, it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
And so all the sin that James has been referring to throughout the letter, and we've been looking at it this whole year, um, things like the sin of partiality, treating someone better or worse, depending on their economic standing, Um, the sin of quarreling and selfish ambition and coveting and desiring what other people have. Later on in the book, he, he, he says, um, he talks about the sin of pursuing earthly wealth at the cost of relationships, saying all those things, all those, those things they're giving themselves to are evidence that they've actually pursued friendship with the world. Um, and, and James says that means that they're making themselves enemies of God. Strong language. It's, it's quite something to take in. And I just want to... Ha- make a quick note here. Um, when we talk about being friends with the world or ha- having friendship with the world, we're not, um, and, that, and that that's not a good thing. We're not saying, the Bible's not saying you can't have friends with people who aren't Christians. Um, that's not what's being said here. When he speaks about being friends with the world, he's talking about adopting the value system of the world and living your life in accordance with that rather than living in accordance to God's ways. And so that's what he means by being friends with the world. And so, what are they to do? What are they to do? We finally get to the solution, according to James, in the section that we're looking at today. How are they to fight worldliness? So that's the question that we're looking at today. That's the title of this talk, is Fighting Worldliness. And James tells us how to do it in our passage in chapter 4, verse 7 to 10. So let's give it a read. He says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So that's the text that we're looking at today. Really cheerful stuff, isn't it? Um, I wonder if any of you have ever experienced this, just the overuse of the word best. Like, everything is the best. The best, my favorite, and that, in my mind, is, is not the definition of the best. The best means there can only be one. Um, so you'll hear people saying, oh, my goodness, this is the best cheesecake I have ever tasted. And then the next week, about another piece of cheesecake, they say, this is the best piece of cheesecake. And you just look at that person and say, where's your loyalty? And how can you be so easily swayed by another piece of cheesecake? You know, um, we just use the, we throw it around now, this word best. It it's, can be used to describe anything. And I have an interesting relationship with this concept of a best friend, um, my best friend. I think most of us can relate to having a best friend in primary school, just that person that you spend loads of time with. And I had a best friend, and we, um, we really enjoyed hanging out. We would play school, school every day. So we'd go to school, and then we'd come home, and then we'd play school, school, and then I became a teacher. So you can really just see it was quite clear. There were no surprises there. And we loved hanging out. We spent every weekend together. And then her dad got another job, and they relocated, and they moved away, and I was 11, and it was really, really tragic. I cried for weeks. It, I was very lonely. I was, um, yeah, devastated by losing my best friend. And um, yeah, so I suppose ever since then, I've really tried to protect myself, and I no longer have a best friend. I have many very good friends, um, you know, because people let you down and they leave. And so... <laughs> um, That's sort of how I've approached it. I have a few really, really good friends, and um, I I mentioned this to Paul, and he sort of looked at me and he said, I thought I was your best friend. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yes, I suppose. (laughs) Um, So you're probably wondering, what has this got to do with today's text, this whole story about best, having a best friend? Well, you see, when James is talking about our relationship with God, 
he's saying that when it comes to that, we can't be really, really good friends with both the world and with him. It just doesn't work. Um, you can't have it that, you know, if the one doesn't work out well, at least I've got a backup plan. Um, it's, it's for those of you who are football fans, it's like saying, I am the top number one fan of both Liverpool and Manchester United. Those are, you know, I'm their num each of their number one fans. It's just, it's, you wouldn't trust someone who said that to you because they clearly don't understand what it means to be a number one fan. Those are ma major rivals. And so... Um, James calls that kind of person a double-minded person. You have a dual allegiance, and, and he's really calling them on that. And so to answer the question today, how do we fight worldliness, James would say the way you fight it is by humbly submitting to God alone. That's how you fight worldliness, to be single-minded in your devotion to him. He's not one of many best friends. He's not one of many backup plans. He is the only one, and he's the safest because he never changes, and he will never leave. And with him, you don't need a backup option. And so James says the only way then in verse 7 is to submit yourself to God. And that sort of verse, um, can, yeah, uh, can you get all the text up there, please? Uh, yeah, so the verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, almost acts as a heading, and, and the verses that follow are sort of sub-points of that, describing, okay, what does it look like to submit yourself to God. And so that's going to be our structure for this morning. Submission to God means that we, um, can you get my um, picture thingy up there with the, there we go. Um, how do we fight worldliness? We submit ourselves to God. And then in the text that follows, we've got three points. We resist the devil. Secondly, we build relationship with God. And then thirdly, we repent. And that's the call to repentance. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. So here we go. Before we get there, I just want to clarify what submission looks like. It's not a word that we really like. It's not a word that we uh, throw around. In fact, we're a little bit put off by that. Um, and so what is submission and what does that look like? So to submit to God is to commit yourselves to obey Him fully and completely and with a good attitude. It's what we say to our kids. Obey straight away with a good attitude. It's what we say to them. It's not really what they do. But that's what we want. <laughs> um, it's a truly humble heart that can align to another's authority. Because in our culture, it's, it's, that's not really the done thing. It's like you are in charge. You are the authority. You can do what feels right. And actually, you should do what feels right. Don't obey someone else's. Don't put yourself under someone else's authority. But here we're being called to put ourselves under God's authority with a truly humble heart and not to do it begrudgingly or out of duty. Um, I heard a story about a boy, and he was driving in the car with his mom, and this was before the days of seatbelts. I can't actually remember those days. Were there days without seatbelts? Apparently, there, were, there was a time when there were no seatbelts. Now we have to strap our kids in with so many like things, they can't move. But back then, you would just have to ask your child to sit, and they would have to sit. Um, there was nothing restraining them. And this child didn't want to sit in the, in the back seat. They wanted to stand up, and so they were standing up, coming forward between the between the two front seats and bothering the mom who's now trying to drive, and we all know how danger, dangerous that is. And so obviously the mom is getting very frustrated and saying, please, can you sit down? Like, I'm trying to drive. Can't you see that? I can't concentrate. If I'd slam on the brakes, you would have the rearview mirror imprinted on your forehead forever. And she tried all means of negotiation and manipulation, and this child just wouldn't listen. He wouldn't sit down. So what could she do but pull the car over? And she pulls the car over, and it's not what she wants to do. She, yeah. Anyways... Gives the child a hiding because you could do that in the olden days. And they get back in, and um, the child is now sitting. 
great. So she managed to get done what she needed to do. And she's driving along, and a few minutes later, the child pipes up from the back seat. You know, I might be sitting on the outside, but I am standing in the inside. <laughs> and it's just, isn't that us? <laughs> you know, I might be smiling at the traffic cop saying, yes, of course I will be rerouted by you, even though my house is right there and there's an event going on and I have to, you know, this is obviously not a real example from my life. I have to go three kilometers around everybody else to get back to my house. I will do so. And we smile. Um, Where's inside? We are standing up. We don't want to listen. We're doing it begrudgingly. Um, and so, yeah, that's just a story to describe. That's, that's us. I mean, that's, that's me. We'll obey on the outside, but on the inside, you know, we have our own thoughts. Um, and when, we, when it comes to submitting to God, he can see beyond the outside. He can see beyond that outside posture or the, um, the words. He can see right into our heart. And so that's what God's calling us to, is a wholehearted submission to him. That's not just this outside um, yeah, uh, posture, but actually it's a heart. It's a, it's a heart that's submitted to him. You see, someone who's fully submitted to God isn't quarrelsome. Last week we looked at um, what, it, what it looks like um, when we fight with one another and how most of us are involved in conflicts, um, even if most of the fight is happening in your own head and the other person is totally oblivious, most of us are um, quarrelsome. But someone who's completely submitted to God um, moves towards conflict with humility and with a, with a desire to be reconciled, with um, a, a desire to be forgiven or to ask for forgiveness. That's what, um, what we do if we are fully submitted to God. And so that is how we fight worldliness. So let's see now those three points. What does James say submission to God looks like? So the first one is that we resist the devil. It says in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I think the starting point for most of us here is to just remember that the devil exists um, and that he is real. I think there's sort of two extremes. There's a lot of people who have almost become obsessed with the devil and they attribute everything to him and um, it becomes all that they can talk and think about. And then I think many of us have just swung to the other side and uh, we don't actually think about the devil much and we don't really think much about what he's doing. And so we're being told here that we need to resist him. He exists, he's real, and he's busy doing things. What is he busy doing? His goal is to lead us astray. He wants to dim, he just wants to turn down your passion for God. You can still have a little bit of it, like he wants to make you believe that you can still have a little bit of it. He just wants to dim it, and then he also wants to harm any human relationships that you have. So he's basically trying to harm your relationship with God and your relationships with others. He might also um, try to terrorize you with fearful happenings. He is definitely behind world wars and genocide. Um, that is his work. But um, much closer to home, he uses our thought life to um, dim our relationship with God and to harm our relationships with others. He lies to us and he deceives us. He has an example. Um, the devil wants you to believe the lie that you can, in fact, be friends with the world and be friends with God. You can do that. And, and how he gets you to believe it is you, he gets you to start to think, well, at least you aren't like one of those super religious people who are just very legalistic and just like not a lot of fun and super serious. And you way more fun and you dabble in a little bit of sin, but you know what? That makes you relatable. And you, you, um, you allow sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Compromise. 
and you sort of just laugh it off and you just think, oh, well, you know what, I can do them both. I can do this dual allegiance thing. That's one of the lies that, um, that Satan would love us to believe. What about the lie that you will only be happy if your house was just a little bit bigger, you just had that extra room, um, or if you had that new car, just one upgrade, or if you just had an extra thousand rand a month, you would be so much happier. Things would be so much easier. Um, those are lies that <laughs> Satan wants to feed us with and he wants us to dwell on um, because as we sort of sit with those feelings of discontent, we will distrust God. Um, and that's exactly what he wants. When we do that, when we have those thoughts, we being exactly like Adam and Eve in the garden where they didn't believe that God had their best interests at heart. They thought God was holding out on, holding out on them. They looked at that forbidden fruit and they thought, I'm sure we could have that and the other, all the other stuff that God's provided us with. We can have both. We don't really believe that God knows everything and that we can trust him. We think he's holding out on us. And when we do that, when we can't stop thinking about all those things we covet and desire, if only I was married to a different person or had this or that, we essentially saying that, God, you're not a good enough provider. You haven't given me what I actually deserve and want. And I don't trust you. You've held out on me. And so Satan will feed these lies. He'll prompt you daily to distrust God and to rather trust in yourself and to, to um, build in you a pride and a self-justification. And so how do we resist the devil? If that's what he's busy doing um, in us all day, every day, feeding us with these lies, what are we supposed to do to resist that? This is the one time that it's okay to back chat. <laughs> we don't just listen to these thoughts. We need to talk back to them. We need to speak back. And we're not just replacing negative thoughts with positive thinking. The Bible has a very different approach to how we resist the devil. We replace the lives, the lies with truth, and where do we find that truth? We find that truth not in ourselves. We find that truth in the Bible, and so we go to God's Word. If you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6, it's that very famous section on how to stand firm against the devil, and he talks about the armor of God, and you have all those items of protection, the helmet and the breastplate and um, all of it in the shield, but then you have one weapon and that one weapon is the sword of the Spirit, and it's described as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so the only weapon you have is the Bible. It's the Word of God, um, and it is powerful. It is so, so powerful. So if that is our weapon, we need to get to know it. We need to read the Bible. We need to study it. We need to learn it, because that truth is what we need to replace the lies with. So here's some examples. When you're feeling sorry for yourself because you don't have as much money as so-and-so um, and you're busy driving past their house and you just wish it would be yours and wouldn't life be fantastic, instead of feeding those thoughts and dwelling on them as we do, you speak the truth to yourself. And I heard a talk where someone urged you, just use your own name, and it's so powerful. Say, Leanne, the Bible says that all the wealth of this world is temporary and that it will rust and it will fade and... and at, at some point, it will no longer be. Leanne, you are called to focus on that which has eternal value, and that is building my kingdom. Leanne, remember that God will provide for you because he cares for you. He cares for you more than the lilies of the field that he clothes and the, um, the birds of the air that he feeds. Leanne, the Lord is your shepherd. You can trust him. He's going to take you to green pastures. He will give you everything that you need. And so, Leanne... Rather put your attention on that which is of eternal value.
What about another example from last week? All these quarrels and fights that we're having in our minds where we make ourselves out as just amazing and everybody else is really letting us down. What would Scripture say to that? Well, Leanne, firstly, you need to remember that you are way more sinful than you realize and that Jesus didn't come to save that other person. He actually came to save you because you have sin that you need to deal with. Leanne, Jesus actually instructs you not to judge other people because, Leanne, there's such a big log in your eye that you need to take out first before you can try and take the speck out of that other person's eye. And Leanne, just remember, God has called you to be a peacemaker, to not run away from conflict and hide from it, but to go towards that person with a heart to reconcile, with a heart um, to, to, um, to, to yeah, be in a good relationship again. Leanne, Jesus also says that if you're angry with someone, you have to deal with that. You have to be reconciled to that person before you bring your gift to the altar. That's how important reconciled relationships um, is to God. Okay, so we need to talk to those lies. We need to replace those lies with truth. Um, So let us be aware that, yes, Satan exists. He's there. His two major goals are to drive a wedge between you and God and between you and other people. And if that's what's happening, then that's evidence that he's at work. If he's um, fueling bitterness and dis, uh, discontent or um, dissatisfaction, self-justification, if he's fueling your pride. And so, yeah, his attacks can be physical. They can be, and they often are. But um, most often and close to home is what happens in your mind. And so let's replace those lies with the truth that comes from Scripture. And so what happens, James tells us, what happens when we resist the devil? What does he do? Does he walk slowly away? No, he flees, he bolts, he runs, he gets out of there so fast. Um, And that I find so encouraging. You see, Satan is really no match for God's word and for his truth and um, for his power. It is not a fair fight. And so as soon as we speak out that truth, Satan has no option but to flee. and, and, And he's gone. And so let's move on to our second point. We're looking at what submission to God looks like. We see it looks like resisting the devil, and that's a daily thing that we need to do. And then secondly, we need to build relationship with God. We need to create an intimate and vibrant relationship with God. So let's look at that verse 8. It says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. So James is calling them to actively move towards God. It doesn't happen By chance, it requires deliberate action. Let's look a little bit at the Old Testament. Is is this relationship with God stuff, is that a New Testament idea? Or is actually that something that God had in mind right from the beginning? If we look at Deuteronomy 4 verse 8, it says the following. And what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And that is from the Old Testament. God, right from the beginning, wanted to be a God that was near to his people whenever they called upon him. Let's look at what David says in Psalm 139. In verse 5, he says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. From verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Just this incredible truth that there is nowhere you can go from his presence, that he is near to us, that he is there. 
And then let's also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. It says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Isn't that beautiful? He lives with us. He walks amongst us. You see, that's what distinguished God's people from all other nations. Their God wasn't a distant God. He was with them. Um, he was close to them. Are you tempted to invert the order that is set up here by James? He says, um, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Are you saying, oh, you see, I'm waiting for God to first come near to me, and then when I feel like he's near, then I will move towards him, and I will pray, and maybe I'll come to church or something like that, but I'm waiting for him. Well, what if I had to tell you he's already made the first move? From the beginning, it's always been God who takes the first step. And if you look at Abraham, God came to Abraham. If you look at Moses, God comes to Moses in the burning bush. If you look at the Israelites, they came out of Egypt, and God was with them in um, the cloud by day and the fire by night. He was with them. He came to them. And God's greatest move towards us was that of sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That beautiful verse, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can now have eternal life. We have peace with God. We are reconciled to the God of the universe. But because we are still sinful human beings, although we have been reconciled to him and we have a relationship with him, we so quickly forget that and we so quickly drift away. And we don't enjoy the intimacy with God that is for us to have. It's just a crazy thought that when you take one step, one move towards God, the God of the universe comes near to you. It's just quite incredible. And the way that we do that, how do we take that step? How do we move towards God? It's through Christian practices, and it's through those disciplines. Um, we, we probably all know what they are. It's time spent praying. It's time spent talking to God. It's enjoying God in, in the Bible. It's enjoying worshiping God. And when we do that, we build the relationship with God. We, we cultivate intimacy with God. When we then come together and we gather here um, on a Sunday, people can see what has been cultivated in private on display in public. You see, people who don't pray in private, they're going to be really bored when it comes to praying in public. Um, if you're not singing in private, you're not going to want to sing in public. If you're not delighting in and really enjoying God's Word, then coming here to hear God's Word maybe isn't really sparking much in you. And so a disinterest in this public gathering of God's people is related to an absence of personal delight and joy in cultivating the nearness of God in the privacy of my own heart. Those are Alistair Begg's words. So let us come near to God. Let us do it. He will draw near to us. What step can you take this week? If you just think of your week, what could you do? What small step can you take to draw near to him? Is it going for a prayer walk or listening to and singing some worship songs, um, waking up earlier than you usually do and reading the Bible in the quietness of your home? Um, it's a practice. We talk of them as spiritual practices. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean you're going to get it right straight away. It's just it's something you keep practicing and you keep getting better at it as you mature as a Christ follower. And so think about that for yourself. What could that next step be? Okay, now for the final point. Um, submission to God, what does it look like? 
Thirdly, it's repentance. It's the call to repent and come to God. So let's look at verse 9 and 10 together. It says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So these are strong words. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Okay, so full disclosure, I find this section really difficult <laughs> to stomach, and when I was told this is what I needed to preach on, I was like, no, really, because it's just so bleak, and it's just so serious, and I enjoy being positive, and um, much to be, you know, I can, can be that annoying positive person who's always looking for the silver lining, or, you know, the glass is half full kind of person, and so when I was given these verses, I, um, I didn't appreciate it a lot, and, but it's, it's been, I suppose it's been really good. Um, the seriousness of it did get me down, but let's look, what, what is James getting at? Why is he getting so serious? What is he doing? He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to be devastated by their sin, to get serious, really, really serious. Their sin, my sin, is no laughing matter. It's not something you just dabble in and, you know, laugh off. And so they need to stop doing that. They need to wash their hands, which um, talks about ac their actions, um, the things that they do, and they need to purify their hearts. So that talks about their motivations, their attitude. They need to have pure motivations and attitudes. Um, I just want to read the following from Douglas Moo. His commentary says, All persons will inevitably mourn for their spiritual state. They can wait to mourn until it's too late when God has brought his judgment on the earth. Or they can mourn now, turning sorrowfully from their sin so that they will have no occasion to mourn when the Lord returns. He also says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We all know that's a very common worldview, and it ignores the terrifying reality of God's judgment. But even the committed Christian, even us, we can slip into this casual attitude towards sin ourselves, presuming too much on God's forgiving and merciful nature. And so repentance is a lifelong practice for the Christian. We have been purified once and for all. When we put our trust in Christ, he cleanses us completely and we stand before him righteous. But then he calls us to a continual life of repentance, continually coming before him to ask for forgiveness. And so what is the proper response when we look at our own sin? Do we simply laugh it off? Do we take it lightly? Ugh, you know, ugh, I'm just an impatient person. It's just who I am, you know, and laugh about it. Or I, I, just, I, have a, I, I just have a short fuse. And, you know, that's from my father's side or my mother's side. And ha, ha, ha. And you sort of just laugh it off. And, you know, that's just me. Um, that's certainly what I do. But what James is getting at here is he's saying, no, you don't just laugh it off. You take it seriously. You take it very seriously. Um, when we are submitted to God and God completely, we learn to laugh, and we learn to mourn at the right time. There's an appropriate time to laugh, and there's an appropriate time to mourn. And he's not telling us as Christians to become dull and serious and boring and the person no one wants to invite over because they just make everything so sad and serious. Um, that's not what he's calling us to. In fact, Christians have a, like, a lot, a lot to be joyful about. You know, Paul says rejoice always. So he's not calling us to be boring, serious people. What he's calling us to is to laugh at the right time and to mourn at the right time. And sin is no laughing matter. You see, because it was my sin that cost Christ his life. There's a beautiful hymn that says the following. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. 
until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And it's just that thing, it's my sin that held him there, and that's why I mourn, and that's why it is so serious, and we are grieved by our sin. And so as we humble ourselves, if we look at verse 10, it says that God will lift us up. How countercultural is that statement? If we come, we humble ourselves, we repent, we, f- we fall before God on our knees, He lifts us up. Our culture says, you need to promote yourself. You need to tell people how wonderful you are. People applaud it when you go out there with confidence, and you know we, we see that as something to really applaud in our culture. And that is the opposite of what is being said here. We're being told to bring ourselves low, and that it is God then who will lift you up. God, uh, the, Eugene Peterson in the message puts it like this. I love it. He says, get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. To be lifted up, to come up onto your feet starts with getting onto your knees, and he will lift you up. I want to end off with this parable told by Jesus. Um, It's the parable of the Pharisee, who's the super religious guy, and the tax collector, and it's found in Luke 18, uh, verse 9 to 14. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a, dis- at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So those are Jesus' own words that James, who was his half-brother, would have heard um, from Jesus probably a few times, and he is now writing those exact words in his letter. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And with Christ, he knows whether we have truly humbled ourselves or not. Um, From the outside, it might look like you have submitted to God. This Pharisee looked like he had submitted to God. He was doing everything right. He was, you know, the super-duper Christian guy. Well, he wasn't Christian. He was Jewish. But he was the super guy. He had done everything right. From the outside, you can look like you've done everything perfectly and that you're a really, really good person. You can give to charities and you can be super-friendly and just all together around, just a fantastic person. But when it comes to standing before God, that doesn't count. He doesn't look at that. Your list of good things will never outweigh um, what you have, the things you've done wrong. If you hope that that list will exalt you in front of God, God, it won't. But what this parable tells us is that what God is looking for, He's looking for a heart that's submitted to Him completely. He's looking for those who are aware of their need for God, that this tax collector comes and he just says, God, I need you. I'm weak. I don't have what it takes. Have mercy on me. That's what he wants, that we'd be grieved by our sin, that we'd confess and we'd repent of our double-mindedness, of our dual allegiance and our flippant attitude towards sin. And so we're going to end today with an extended time of worship and singing and it's a, it's a great chance for all of us to come before God again 
and to repent and to confess and to freshly submit to him completely. Um, because as we do that, we will find we lift it up. We will find that we, um, we have a joy that is just beyond anything you can get from the, from the world and the world's ways. And so what does it look like for Christians to fight worldliness? We do it on our knees. That's how we fight it. We do it on our knees, submitted to God. And the only weapon we use is the word of God in order to resist the devil, to replace his lies with the truth. And then we do it by coming near to God, by enjoying relationship with him um, through spiritual practices. And we do it by repenting of our sin. 